Peace, everyone. Uh, Welcome to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about true people's liberation movements and revolution. I'm your host, Josh, and I wanted to hop on here quick to talk about something that in the last couple of weeks and months has been sticking out to me more and more. Um, the notion that the global south, the third world, the poor nations, right, are inevitably convicted into that system, into that society, and that that is their role in society, to be poor, We're going to talk about a couple different things. Where does the the terminology, you know, lead us? Where does it come from? Um, You know, what are some of the things that the Global South has given to us? Not only, you know, here, uh, you know, I live in so-called United States. But what has the Third World, the Global South, and their struggles given to humanity and we're going to talk about a couple of different things that have been done in national liberation struggles in nationalist governments in socialist governments and we're going to talk about the nature of things like uneven exchange exploitation and the conscious directive of capitalism imperialism which necessitates these forms of oppression so before we go anywhere else let's talk about these terms the global south the third world what we mean by them when we're using them and maybe a little bit of an understanding of where they come from right So the common conception is that the first world is the so-called international community. And everything else is just poor, inevitably and forever. The term global south, as far as I use it, for me means the non-centers of industrial capitalism and the non-imperialist nations, right? So you have nations that have different government structures, have different, you know, economic structures, but at the end of the day, they are pushed to the bottom of society through imperialistic efforts to sanction or blockade them to destroy their government to assassinate their leadership to uh, enact regime change and coups and so when I say the global south what I mean is these nations in Asia Africa Latin America the Caribbeans the Uh, Pacific Islands, the indigenous nations throughout the Americas, right? This is what I mean by the global south. 
when we're talking about the global north, we're talking about the European and North American empires and imperialists. And especially, we must understand that here we are not talking about the population, the masses of people who cannot entirely be blamed for being sucked into this society. But in fact, the blame lies with the leadership and of the ruling class of the European and North American empires. So this term third world, right? This is another, I think, misunderstood term. The third world is not meant to be an insult. Like calling a nation a part of the third world in its initial formulation from a socialistic sense was to understand the level of advancement that capitalism had allowed in certain regions versus the level of advancement it had created for itself. And this was an analysis also of exploitation, right? So the first world, of course, again, is the European and North American empires. The second world at the time would have been considered like the Soviet Union. And the third world would have essentially been everyone else, right? So how is it that this is an insult when the majority of the people who live in the third world are not active participants in their own impoverishment but are subject to the conditions of exploitation that are central to a system of capitalism imperialism so anyways the third world the global south right these are nations throughout the former or currently colonized imperialized and exploited nations These are countries where oftentimes they are not able to take full control of their economy, of their government, of their military, of their education systems, of their social services, of their productive services and capabilities, of their resources, or of their national funds and finances. And so because of this, a system of uneven exchange whereby aid, quote-unquote, given in loans from the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and other organizations like the USAID, the National Endowment for Democracy, whether it be financial, training, what have you, is always for the purpose of bringing out of that investment more money than they put in. The objective behind the imperialists putting someone like Dina Boluarte in charge of Peru and allowing for this coup to take place, if not directing it from D.C., is because and is for the purpose of extracting Peru's resources, dominating Peru's labor force, and extracting the wealth 
through new forms of colonialism. There is no democracy. There is no freedom. There is no liberty to be had in anything that capitalism, imperialism creates or touches. And so because of this, the ruling class of these empires and the national bourgeoisie, the turncoats, the collaborators, whatever you want to call them, who cooperate with the imperialists, who become their lapdogs, are there for these purposes. There is no other objective except for profits. Profits and control. Control which leads to profits. Profits which leads to more control. Through this system, whether we want to call it neo-colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, it has created structures which have extracted trillions of dollars, if not more, and millions, if not billions, of lives from Africa, Asia, the Americas, and elsewhere. So, if these countries have remained poor for this long, if they've been exploited for this long, why should we care, you know? The common notion, again, is that these countries are to be poor inevitably and forever. Many talk about these nations in a very racist, xenophobic, fascistic way. Reagan once mentioned in a speech back in the 80s, that Africa had only come out, quote-unquote, come out of the jungle, unquote, less than a few decades before then. The Monroe Doctrine and the discussion of front yard or backyard that the Biden administration has brought forward, the Caribbean nations, the Hawaiian Kingdom, Boricua or Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and many other nations, both here on Turtle Island, indigenous nations, and also around the world, have been subject to systems of immense violence. Anyone who has so much as spoke up or spoke out, stood up, or stood out. Didn't need to be a communist. Didn't need to be a socialist. Didn't need to be anything to be painted as one. Patrice Lumumba was not a communist. Nehru was not a communist. Many of the leaders of non-aligned nations, of global south countries, have been non-socialist. Many have also been 
socialist and communist. My point is that all of these people, irregardless of the ideology, the only action that needed to be taken for them to become targets was to say, we no longer want to be exploited. We want to be human beings. This was all it took for Kwame Nkrumah, Thomas Sankara, Patrice Lumumba, Maurice Bishop, Amilcar Cabral, and many others to be assassinated. This was all it took for Iran, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Panama, Bolivia, El Salvador, Palestine, Russia, the Soviet nations, Europe, all of the Caribbean, the indigenous nations and nation states of the Americas. All it took for them to be overthrown, for a military dictatorship to be installed, for them to be occupied, for military bases to be built. All it took for almost their entire progressive, liberal, even centrist, nationalistic, leadership and masses to be incarcerated and assassinated was to say and act upon the notion that they no longer wanted to be oppressed. Because of this, we're taught that the global south doesn't matter. We're taught as if it almost doesn't exist. When we hear this phrase the international community it's a Pavlovian training we're meant to think of exactly who is actually being mentioned when they say this and that is Europe and that is North America but the third world the global south the people have given us so much One doesn't need to simply study the governments. One doesn't need to simply study the socialist countries. One doesn't simply need to study the successes to see that the global south has given more to the world than anybody else. When we talk about the global south as we commonly do, we ignore history on two fronts. The first is that pre-European history, pre-colonial history in Africa, Asia, and the Americas exists. That history did not start with Europe. History did not start with the Greeks or the Romans or the Athenians. History started in Africa and in Asia, and in the Americas. Though it wasn't written down 
on special little tablets for all to see. History happened, and it must be studied. The second way we ignore history is by ignoring the struggles which are taking place today, during, and after colonialism. We must remember, again, history did not start with Europe. History existed for thousands of years before colonialism. History existed of resistance and revolution during colonialism. And the same has continued to be true since neocolonialism and imperialism have filled the vacuum. National liberation and the struggles for an independent Africa, independent Asia, independent Americas. Though many did not succeed in all of their overall objectives, they brought us forward. They brought billions of human beings forward in human history. Socialism brought millions further. But we cannot stop here. We cannot keep these things in the past. We must also learn about the struggles which are happening today. But before we do that, let us jump back into history. Because, of course, it is my favorite. I want to mention a few names here. Some will sound familiar, others might not. Fidel Castro, Ernesto Che Guevara, Thomas Sankara, Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyerere, Augusto Neto, Samora Michel, Kim Il-sung, Amilcar Cabral, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Ho Chi Minh. Now, <clears throat> there are many more names I could add to the list. We could add also Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton, Fred Hampton. We could also say Jaleel Muntakim. We could also mention others like Dr. Matulu Shakur and Kamau Siddiqui and Sundiata Akolai. We could also mention folks like Claudia Jones, Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Patrice Lumumba, and many others. Now, the one thing that these all these folks all have in common is not ideology, it's not practice, it's not concept, it's not content. The one thing that these people all had in common was that they had a belief, a belief that the world could be better, that it should be better, and that they as individuals, but also among organizations, among the masses, 
in their communities internationally, they would commit to putting their words into action. They were committed and dedicated to putting their money where their mouth was. The one thing that I and others among the so-called left have in common is that we have not shown that dedication, that militancy, that commitment to real, structural, material, and foundational change. And we certainly have not put our words into practice. And if we have, we have chosen to ignore the mistakes, the failures, and the contradictions in both our words and our actions. So, I mention all these names. Why? I find... I'll say today, which is July 26, 2023, it is the 70-year anniversary of the July 26 movement's foundational action in Cuba, the Moncada Barracks attack. This was an organized effort by 80 Cubans, among which Fidel Castro was one, who intended not to murder erroneously the dictatorship which had massacred to this point at least 15,000 Cubans. It was not to assassinate and torture Bautista. It was not to harm in any way even the majority of the rank and file of the military. This was an effort, in Fidel Castro's own words and his recollection, to take by surprise an army barracks, to seize their arms without so much as even firing a shot, if possible. And through their own location and a nearby location to defend themselves and to call upon the Cuban population to take up arms in struggle against the dictatorship. This ultimately did not succeed. It led to the death of dozens and the arrest of many more, including Fidel Castro. Today, personally, is also the final resting day of my grandfather. He passed away around this time last year, and my grandmother had a hard time deciding how to lay him to rest. And so we had a ceremony today. It was all right. My family, as folks who might listen to this know, 
um, is very evangelical. So it was not a great event, you know, in content. But he was a very important person to me. And so being able to take a day and some time to honor him felt appropriate for the date. Though he wasn't a communist. Um, And he didn't probably know nothing good about Cuba. He was still, to his core, a great, great human being. So I think it's appropriate to bring up both of these things because I mentioned Fidel Castro. I mentioned many other names. Because again, these were human beings who decided that they were going to dedicate their lives, their breaths of air, their minutes and hours and days and months and years on this earth to trying however they saw fit to make it better, however they saw it needed to be. And we can sit and criticize and contradict and historicize or even celebritize these individuals. But that's not why I'm here. That's not why I want to talk to, you know, these these points. The reason why I bring up these individuals is because I feel such a strong sense of love emanating both from them, feelings of love of myself towards them, and a sense of love that encapsulates all of my feelings towards socialism, towards struggle, towards revolution. And I know it might seem counterintuitive, but empathy and love and compassion for human beings has to be the context with which we struggle. It has to be the core of what we are doing because if we are doing these things for opportunistic reasons if we are doing these things purely for ideological reasons we will make mistakes we will fail and we will also hurt people and unless that's our goal we have to try our best to not do that and I don't think that's my goal so (laughs) I will say for certain that you know it's not my goal that I think I know many people who it isn't their goal. So we need to study and learn and respond to in action the struggles that these individuals and those who were around them, the Cuban people, the Angolan people, the Mozambican people, the uh, Ghanaian people, the uh, Guineans, the Cabo Verdeans, the Russians, the uh, Bosnians, the um, the Venezuelans, the Nicaraguans, the El Salvadorians, the Peruvians, the Bolivians, and many others. We have to honor and cherish this sacrifice that they made. All of these people could have done exactly what everybody around us and what some of us are trying to do, which is make it in the rat race. 
They could have been trying to get a job. They could have been trying to go to school. They could have been focused on making money. They could have been focused on their family. And maybe some of them were. Maybe some of them, you know, fell from the the heights that some of us put them up to. And maybe some of them never really were there in the first place. But what we do know is that history will answer these questions. And history is answering those questions now because those people are still struggling to this day. If you look in Africa, if you look in Asia, if you look in the Americas, you see daily strikes, protests, rebellions, riots as they're called, resistance, organization, and in some cases, revolution. So why... Why did they do it? Why do we do it? Why do we... Why should we care? About them? About this shit? Why... Why why the fuck shouldn't we all just... Kick it? And wait for it all to burn down? Well, first of all, because... I don't think it's gonna happen like that. Second of all... Survival. When you look at what capitalism and imperialism have done to the world, there's a speech given by Fidel in the 90s when he meets with Chavez. And he's speaking to groups of students, of diplomats, of young folks, right? And he says, what is the root of all these systems of oppression, all these evils of poverty, of illiteracy, of discrimination against indigenous people, against Africans, against women, against LGBTQ plus people. What is it that is at the root of this? And he answers his own question. He says, we know what is at the root of this. We know that it is capitalism. And we know this because we have studied history, but we have also taken part in it. And so, you know, when we look today at the continued fight for liberation, we have to understand that this is because by the necessity of the environment, the conditions, the situations that capitalism itself, nobody else, nothing else, capitalism itself by its own natural tendencies has created poverty, hunger, you know, illiteracy. It has created a phenomenon that, you know, in many cases probably was unheard of before so-called European civilization. And that is homelessness. Now, of course, that is to say that in different places, in different spaces, it was not a systematic intention. Though, even saying that aloud, 
class society has been around for many times and we cannot fetishize the past. So why did they struggle? Why do we struggle? Survival. Because if we don't struggle, the earth will die. If we do not fight against oppression and exploitation everywhere, it will continue to exist all over the world. Another reason why they or we might fight is encapsulated in the question, who fights for you? Take a moment. Ask yourself, who has fought for you in your life? Was it your boss? Was it your politicians, your elected officials? Was it your creditor or your banker? Was it your tax collector? It was never in the ancient days of class society, nor today. The oppressors, or the people who have raised themselves above and beyond society through wealth accumulation and through power, who will turn around to the people who, through exploitation, through slavery, have been made poor, have been made powerless, so that a handful, I'm talking a literal handful, of extremely powerful people can continue to stay extremely powerful. In that system, would you ever expect them to fight for you? Have they ever fought for you? It is only us who will fight for ourselves. But the Cubans did not fight simply for Cuba. The Venezuelans and the Nicaraguans did not and do not fight along with the Cubans, along with the Vietnamese, along with the Chinese, along with many others, simply for their own nation states, simply for their own communities or countries. They fought an international system of oppression, a global structure of slavery and exploitation. They fought for humanity, and they are fighting for humanity. These struggles, again, are international because capitalism and imperialism are international. You look around the world and there is not a corner of the globe that has not been colonized, enslaved, or exploited 
by the capitalists. There is not a mill or a mine or an oil reserve or farmland or what have you that has not been extracted to the levels and depths which are humanly possible in order to accumulate excessive amounts of wealth for a minuscule amount of people. And through this, signed the death notice for billions of people. This is capitalism. And capitalism is not the shiny, prosperous, profiteering you see in these fanciful depictions in the media. Capitalism exists in Bangladesh. Capitalism exists in India. Capitalism exists in Puerto Rico. Capitalism exists in El Salvador and in Ecuador. Capitalism exists in the United States, yes. And it has advanced the nation and the nation's leadership, especially, to a certain level of industrialization. But it is the same capitalism at different ends which created both excessive wealth for the ruling class and excessive poverty for the majority of the world's population. I'm not talking 51%, 52%. I'm talking 99% of the global population is exploited. And yes, that exploitation varies. And yes, the levels and depths and complexities and contradictions within that exploitation varies. But unless you control or dictate power, not simply through government, but through ownership and control of resources, of wealth, of factories, of land, you will never be rich. You will never, under capitalism imperialism, be granted autonomy or sovereignty over yourself, over your nation, over your resources. Because this system is a system of slavery. First, of the slavery which existed in early class society after the fall of matriarchal and communalistic indigenous societies through uh, patriarchy, through the establishment of land ownership, private property, law, and then came slavery of prisoners of war, of other peoples from other areas. And this was the basis by which Europe built itself up. In Rome, in Greece, in Athens, it was through slavery that Plato, Aristotle, Heraclides, and all the other philosophers were able to articulate 
stupid fucking ideas. It was through this system of slavery that the Romans, the Greeks, and the other empires of Europe placed themselves on the map. It was through slavery and colonialism that Britain, Spain, Italy, Portugal, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the offshoots of colonies and settler colonial nations in Australia, in the so-called United States, in Canada, in Mexico, throughout the Caribbean, throughout Central America, throughout Africa, throughout Asia. All of this came from a system of class oppression, through a system of exploitation. And all of these struggles are connected because each of them built upon one another towards the overall objective which is liberation which is an end to slavery this is an international struggle i can't i can't really put it into words how i understand it when i really sit and think about it but these aren't just abstractly connected because we can tie them together loosely Because capitalism exists on the plane that it does, which is that the United States is not its own independent sovereign thing that's completely separate from the rest of the world, right? But capitalists actually have relationships and connections between the entire world. And that's really how they hold power, right? Because when a revolution happens here or a coup happens there, right? The capitalists, the imperialists, the national bourgeoisie, the bankers, the military officials, the uh, agricultural firms, the corporations, the CEOs, right? They can all just get on a plane and fly to the other nation. So this is an international system of exploitation. This is an international system that is dictated. It's a dictatorship. And so when we study history of resistance, we have to study it in a way that helps us to understand that these are all a part of the same struggle, which again, is for a final liberation from the exploitation of human being by human beings. Because when the Soviet people had their revolutions, when the Chinese people had their revolutions, when the Vietnamese people had their revolutions, when the Cubans had their revolution, when the Nicaraguans had their revolution, when the Grenadans had their revolution, when the indigenous peoples of the Americas had their resistance struggles, their revolutions, both before, during, and after colonialism, when the African continent made itself independent, took independence from its former rulers, who now still today in many cases pull the strings of the puppeteers who lead them. It was connected inherently, even if it wasn't directly mentioned, to an international struggle for humankind 
to finally put an end, to flip the page, to turn a new chapter in history. And today, it's also to save the earth. Because like it or not, want to talk about it or not, we are at the precipice not only of fascism, but of further increasing consequences of climate collapse. Many around the world are facing the brunt of both these things. And until we recognize that their struggle is our struggle, until we recognize that we can never be free until all are free, that no one is free unless everyone is free, then we will not succeed in accomplishing what should be all of ours overall goal which first and foremost is an end to oppression but primarily we must also understand that the only system the only way the only worldview the only ideology the only political structure that can give us the opportunity to do just that is socialism. Not because I said so, but because if you look in history at those who have been able to take on, root out, and in some cases almost eliminate slavery, starvation, illiteracy, oppression, religious extremism, discrimination, patriarchy, It was never perfect, it will never be perfect, but if you look at the cases where it has happened, it has always been socialist nations. It is not the capitalist nations who fought for women's rights, who fought for the rights of self-determination and of sovereignty for the global south. It was not the European or North American nations who fought against slavery, who fought against colonialism, because if they were, they would have had to be fighting themselves. And so we must understand that the global south, more than anything, more than any material, any commodity, any resource, any individual, can give us. It has given us life. Today we live in a certain way on two sides of the coin positive and negative because of the global south first of all the positive any and all struggles that the people of the global south have succeeded in doing have forced the imperialists to have to accommodate to those realities so as not to allow for class conflict to rise to a level where revolution is possible probable and ready But second of all, the reason why you have Wi-Fi in your house, the reason why I am recording this on a cell phone, the reason why I have two years of a useless university degree, and the reason why I work at a Dunkin' Donuts and make my income is because 
the global south is still enslaved. Haiti, the first black independent republic, is under threat of yet another occupation. I raise this because Haiti, like Cuba, like Vietnam, like China, but unlike others because it was the first of its kind hundreds of years before even the African continent itself did the same. It struggled against French colonialism, it struggled against slavery, and it won. It kicked the French out. Haiti and its people succeeded. And they were punished for it. Immediately, $300 million were sanctioned against it for debt. Its leaders were assassinated. Those who did not turn collaborators were harassed constantly, were under threat not only of violence from the French, but also violence from the masses who had been brought into struggle and were not ready to wait for anyone or anything. This was an explosive moment. And the French, along with other imperialist nations, took advantage of this moment to crush the Haitian people. And they have been doing so since Toussaint and Dessalines. They, the imperialists, have killed billions. Not through natural causes. Not simply through starvation, which is a terrible enough death. But through genocide. Europe massacred, enslaved, and extracted millions. But the global south, the Haitians, the Africans, the Vietnamese, they, along with others, today in Peru, in Sudan, in Nicaragua, in Cuba, continue to struggle against imperialism, against slavery, against capitalism, and against colonialism, because none of these things have been fully rooted out. So what did they do? What do they do? Well, they fought poverty. Now, this is something that, you know, before I even get into this, I just will say that um, it's interesting how we have so much war, but rarely do we have war on things that are causing people harm for the purpose of eradicating them. 
Instead, we choose subsequent things like a war on drugs. Not to root out the consequences or causes of poverty. We don't have a war on poverty. We have a war on addiction. Not to help curb addiction or help support addicts former or current but a war against impoverished people a war against people who are addicted to substances a war against people who are backed into a corner who are powerless this is the war which the society we live in the imperialist capitalist world has chosen to wage. This is what they dedicate almost $1 trillion officially to doing. Bolstering the military. The largest military in the world by multiplicities. And they ask for a trillion dollars. This should let us know exactly what the objectives of this country and of those who are subservient or participatory with it. We should understand when millions are kicked off of their health care services, when millions have the crumbs which we received during the first few years of the pandemic are taken away. When childcare is made unaffordable, when housing is made unaffordable, when nutritious food and quality living standards are made unaffordable, even within the richest, most advanced capitalist imperialist nation, we know that the time has come to sound the alarm, to say, we will not stand anymore what I want to say before I go is that these people fought poverty not by arresting people not by murdering people in the street they fought poverty by building houses by building hospitals by educating and training experts, by sending children and students to other nations free of charge to be able to learn, experience life, and to bring back the knowledge to their people and help their people. They developed education. They developed production. They developed political involvement and participation of the masses through organization, through collective and communal societies and institutions, and through revolutionary struggles. The people were brought for the first time in most cases, if not all, into active control, power, and authority over not only their own lives 
but the control of their resources, their government, their society, their education, their media, and their destinies. They granted land to the poor, to the peasantry, to those who had been working the land. They created autonomous indigenous nations, autonomous indigenous communities through plural national systems like in Bolivia and other cases. They combated addiction by actually creating a society worth living in without being addicted to a substance simply to tolerate it and make it through. But also through a direct attack on the root origin of addiction, which is poverty, oppression, stress, and suffering. They created productive jobs, meaningful jobs, that brought something to the nation, to the people who did them, and gave them living wages. More than anything, they also fought fascism and have stood against imperialism. They've done this internationally through groups like the Non-Aligned Movement in the United Nations, in Selak, in the ALBA, in BRICS, in the Shanghai Cooperative Coordination, at the Bandung Conference, and other places. But also by bringing technological, scientific, political, military, and other experiences to struggling people around the world. It was the Cubans, along with the Angolans and the South Africans and others who defeated apartheid. The black South Africans, along with others who came from other nations, who came from other nationalities, who came from other ethnicities and religious, you know, and ideological beliefs. They came from Cuba and they came from around the world to fight apartheid. It was the socialists, the communists, and the revolutionaries who in World War II killed for the time the fascists and put a stop to the death sentence that was fascism for the time being. But fascism, like imperialism and capitalism, are growing again. And so we must remember, if it was history, if it was them in history, that shows us that socialism is the way forward, who are we to say no to it? Mass organization, popular participation, and revolution. These are the things which we need today. We do not need collaboration and appeasement with imperialism or fascism. We need to put an end to them. So today I say thank you to all those who were mentioned by name and all those who may never go heard of by name, who have struggled, suffered, and sacrificed much, including their lives so that today we could carry that struggle forward. Thank you to the Global South and to the people 
of the third world. And thank you today for remembering deep in your heart that revolution is the only way forward.